Great, thanks, Johnny. Um, great to see you this morning. Um, if you're new or visiting or haven't met you, my name's Chris Evans. Um, I'm the assistant pastor here, and we're going to um, do our last instalment in this current Genesis uh, series now. So why don't we pray for the Lord's help um, before we dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us over uh, the last few months as we have uh, been through uh, these chapters. We thank you that you have spoken again and again of your wonderful and sovereign purposes and of your amazing grace. We've seen it again and again towards Jacob and we see it again uh, this morning. We do pray that in your kindness, your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that we would encounter your graciousness towards us in Christ in a deeper way as we hear you speak to us from these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week we are closing things off uh, in both this kind of section of Genesis, but, but also this, this series. And I wonder if when Johnny read it, it kind of felt a little bit like kind of lots of bitty things going on. Um, as endings of a section go, it's, it's not really your typical Hollywood ending that just sort of ties everything up neatly with a bow and then the credits come down and you feel like, oh, you're kind of expecting that to happen. It's a, a little bit more like, like an independent film. Um, you know, the credits kind of pop up out of nowhere and you think, oh, oh I, I don't know what's happened to that person and, and are they going to get together and are these people ever going to reconcile? And you kind of leave some threads hanging. Um, doesn't it, and some kind of imagination to be, to be used in those films. Um, now, clearly, it's not unresolved. We've got the rest of Genesis. We've got the whole rest of the Bible. Um, but it is a chapter that's got lots of tensions in it. Um, I wonder if we went through, you might have spotted there's kind of endings, but also beginnings. Um, there's deaths and there's a birth. There is great human sin, as well as divine worship. Uh, there's all sorts of pillars and, and altars and promises. Um, there's, there's some real trees and there's even some family trees thrown in. Um, lots going on. But it's not just that the story uh, has got tensions and bits which don't quite feel resolved in it. Um, it's also Jacob himself, uh, who we've been seeing a lot of over the last few months. His own heart feels quite unresolved at, at this point as we're, we're kind of landing as well. At chapter 35, we come in to seeing Jacob at an all-time low. And maybe that is saying something if you've been here the last few months. But he, he seems, well, quite a half-hearted believer. And as we go through, one of our questions is going to be, how is the Lord going to respond to him? How, how will he respond to this half-hearted believer? What's going to happen to this tension? And to a lesser degree, perhaps our Jacob's kind of up and downs mirror ups and downs in, in our lives as well. And so the Lord's response to him in his, his half-heartedness is going to teach us something to the Lord's grace to us. And you see three uh, things. Firstly, uh, the Lord responds to Jacob with scandalous grace. As we begin, um, Jacob is at a very low place. And just, just to kind of put that in context, let's, let's see where we've got to up to now. So over 30 years ago, uh, back in chapter 28, Jacob left the land and he had a vision of the Lord at Bethel. 
And if you received God's promises, uh, uh, promises of land and, and people and blessing, and also promises of protection, that, that he would come back to that land with people and that the Lord would come good on what he promised. And what did Jacob do in response? Well, he, he built a pillar. He, he worshipped the Lord and he made a vow that he would return home. He called also the Lord his God. He committed himself to follow this Lord. But many years have passed since that spiritual high. He has 20 years of frustration and work, uh, frustrating family situations with his father-in-law and Leah and Rachel. And, and to put it mildly, it's been quite a mess, hasn't it? And then he's begun the journey home. Then we have him meeting Esau again. What's going to happen then on his way? He has another encounter with the Lord. At this point, it's at night, and the Lord blesses him again. And he reconciles to his brother, and we think, oh, maybe things are, 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 are going to work out well. But at the end of chapter 33, he stops short of coming fully home. He stops short enough to settle in a place called Shechem. He seems to see, think, this, this place seems pleasant enough. Uh, he stops long enough if you were here last week, to see that his reputation with the people around him in the land made him more fearful of what they thought of him than fearful of the Lord. He stops long enough for his own family and entourage to accumulate local gods in their possessions, as we had in verse 2 to 4 of our, of our reading. They've, they've picked up religion and worship from the surrounding culture. He stops there long enough for a lot to happen. And why? Well, his vow to go back, his vow to the Lord, doesn't really seem that important to him anymore. He's compromised on his word. He's compromised on his worship. And last week we saw Jacob's compromise has horrendous consequences. He stops long enough for his daughter Dinah to be raped. He stops long enough for his sons to respond in massacring a, a town. And he stops long enough for his own heart to become so inwardly focused that he cares more about his own skin than seeing justice done. Maybe he arrived in Shechem with good intentions. At the end of chapter 33, we see he builds an altar to the Lord. But maybe there, even there, is he genuine or is he paying lip service to the Lord when he should have been moving on and not staying put? Well, after these early intentions, whether they're good or not, it is striking that throughout Genesis 34 that we heard last week, God is not mentioned once. Before we read one verse of our chapter today, chapter 35, we have to dwell on this this kind of emptiness that Jacob seems to have drifted. He has grown half-hearted. I imagine if we asked him face to face, he probably would say, oh yes, the Lord is my God. But his life doesn't really show it. We should stop short and see the impact that putting God and his purposes at the, the kind of periphery of his life, what impact that has had on his heart and what impact and what consequences it has had on other people around him, the things that he has to live with. 
I imagine this didn't happen overnight, but one small step at a time, one little compromise by compromise. And it's a tragedy, isn't it, when we think of someone who had such a deep encounter with the Lord that he, he seems fairly cool. And maybe that's a tragedy that, that some of us will, will, will know in others' lives. Maybe it's a tragedy that we, we sense a smidgen of in our own hearts. One that we know is there but have been avoiding. A complacency towards the Lord. Maybe we see consequences in our relationships, in our friends and family. Even the best reading of this is that Jacob's heart is just divided in its loyalty. There's, a, there's something there. But, but clearly he has grown half-hearted. And if we some, see something true of that diagnosis for him in our hearts then that that is a heavy feeling. But we can also take heart because there is something true for us too in the remedy that God gives. After a chapter of no mention of God, how does chapter 35 begin? Verse 1. Then God said to Jacob. Then God said to Jacob. We might think, The Lord has every reason to stay silent, to allow Jacob's um, drifting and his rebellion to just run its course. But even at his lowest, God is not done with him. God still speaks. And not just anything, but what words does he speak? He shows him scandalous grace. He could have said all sorts of things to him, all sorts of rebukes and He would have been right, wouldn't he? Right and fair. But it's as if he's saying, Jacob, I'm not done with you yet. I know you've messed up big time, but I need you to know that when I make a promise, I make a promise. So he says, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God. Build it there, Jacob, not at Shechem. Remember your vow. Remember, I am the Lord your God. And he calls Jacob back to that encounter all those years ago. Do you remember, he he uses that phrase, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Jacob, remember, I'm the God who showered grace upon you when you were running in fear of your life. When you were in deep need. Well, Jacob, I'm doing that again. As serious as your sin is, if you will humble yourself and return to me, Jacob, there is more grace. And so if we have followed Jacob on his journey to the gods of Shechem, the gods of our culture, then we too need to humble ourselves and follow him on that journey to the Lord of Bethel. How does Jacob respond? Verse 2, Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. What did they do? So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. God demands all of their worship, not just some of it. God demands all of our worship, not just 
some of it. Maybe Jacob was worried that exclusively devoting himself to the Lord in this foreign land would mean that he was going to miss out on something. That because he was different, that the people around him would oppress him. That he'd be alone, he'd be without anything. But as they begin that journey back to Bethel in their hearts, and then once they get going on their horses, we see that exclusive devotion to the Lord, it never means losing out. It always means gain. Because they have the Lord himself. To see what they they have in these verses. Verse 3, they have someone who answers in their day of distress. Verse 3, they have someone who is present wherever they go. And those things are are true for all believers. Verse 5, they have one who can deliver on his promise to protect. Look, once they get going, they set out and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. That is exactly what what Jacob was fearful of at the end of chapter 34. What are the people around me going to do if I try and respond to what they've done to my daughter? Well, the Lord has shown protection. And something that I think we need to to see here, the the path to true worship for Jacob, the path to true worship for us, it's not going from somewhere where there's, there's no worship to worship of the Lord, but it's from a place of wrong worship to right or or true worship. We are all worshippers, but what is the object of our devotion? For Jacob and his household in Shechem, their hearts had drifted from the Lord. This picture of putting off and burying is is a powerful one, isn't it? There's a sense in saying, We have drifted, but we are going to take them off and bury them. And they are not where our hearts lie anymore. Something that we get as we go throughout scripture. At the end of the book of Joshua, just before uh, the nation of Israel are going to go into the promised land. They're called again to put off their false worship. They gather up their idols and they burn them. Where do we go with our false worship? Where do we bury them? I guess we, we bury them at the foot of another tree, don't we? We bury them at the foot of the cross. This is where we see God's scandalous grace reach its pinnacle at the cross of Christ. And maybe as we look at Jacob, we think, is this a bit too scandalous? Does Jacob really deserve another chance? And The grace of God can seem pretty scandalous, can't it? When we see it in other people's lives like this, when we we look on, when it concerns someone else and we think, oh, really? They've just gone too far. They've done something particularly awful. But when we look in, when we turn in on our own hearts, when we find ourselves in that person's place, we see the cross of Christ from a different perspective, don't we? We see our own need for that grace. If we see our need, if we feel the weight of our sin, as we thought about it particularly last week, then in one sense, the cross, it doesn't become scandalous anymore, but it becomes sweet. And in a sense, it is only scandalous, isn't it, if there are no consequences for sin, if there is no justice at the end of it. But as we look at the cross, we can never say that our sin hasn't had consequences, that justice 
has not been done. No, the scandal is that sweet news that if we have turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, then justice for our sins, by God's grace, has fallen on him. It has been dealt with. And so, as we confessed together earlier, we can say that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It is scandalous, but it is also sweet. How does God respond to this half-hearted believer? Well, he offers more grace. I wonder if anyone here needs to hear those words this morning. Maybe some of us have been wandering in a sort of Shechem place for a number of months or years. Maybe we sense that it is a dangerous, maybe even a disastrous place to be. Well, these verses tell us that it is not too late, that there is more grace. The Lord desires to call us to himself, and he has done everything, even sending his son to make that possible. So let's not miss the opportunity to come back to him. But why? Why show this grace to Jacob? Why show grace to us in Christ? Well, because as well as being scandalous, we see that God's grace is full of purpose. It is purposeful, secondly. Reveals God's purposes for the world. God's kindness here is not just simply doing Jacob a a favour. It's not just a little divine pat on the back. It's God giving Jacob the opportunity to be involved in his cosmic purposes. God's grace is purposeful, full of purpose. And we see that in just a a couple of places. Firstly, did you see that the name change? I wonder if you've ever kind of come across a a misprint in the book. Maybe just a sentence comes up two or three times, or uh, maybe an entire paragraph, or maybe an entire entire page. Um, You might be thinking here, we get to this bit again. We've already had this name change, haven't we? Has, Has something gone wrong in the printing? Verse 9, after Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. Well, we've seen God appear to him before. We've had the naming before, but this isn't a typo. Naming is often a very significant thing in the Bible. Often you get little footnotes telling you what, what the names mean. Uh, we've had that quite a lot of names in the last, um, last few months. Um, if you want to, to go and see some, see some interesting names, go back and read the, read the story where all of Jacob's children are being born. Have a look at the meaning of those names. That gives you a bit of an insight into what's going on in the, in, in the mother's hearts at, at the time. But what has happened uh, to Jacob since the last name change? Well, it has been years of compromise, hasn't it? There's been some, some real challenge for him. And so why do we get this again? Well, the Lord is reminding Jacob, Jacob, this is who you really are. You're not Jacob anymore. You are Israel. You're not the one who strives on your own, who grasps, who schemes for blessing. You're the one who strives with me, who I strive for. Jacob, or Jacob's one who lives a life where God fits into his purposes. But Israel, well, Israel lives a life where he fits into what God is doing. 
And in Christ, too, we are given new identities. We are given the opportunity, the invitation to be involved in God's purposes for the universe. Not just doing churchy things on a, on a Sunday, but honouring the roles and responsibilities that he's given us in our work, our families, our friendships, our communities. We see that there is purpose here in this name change, that God's grace is full of purpose. But, but what is that purpose? Well, have a look at the promised blessing that we, we get again in verses 11 and 12. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. The purpose is people. God is building his kingdom. Back at Bethel, we in, in chapter 28, that first dream about 30 years ago, we heard that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Jacob. And in Bethel, again, all these years later, we're reminded this is still going to happen, that God is creating, he says here, a nation, a community of nations, even kings from Jacob. And this isn't down to Jacob's cunning. No, it is down to God's grace. God isn't building Jacob's kingdom. He is building his kingdom through Jacob. And here we see that this scandalous grace is a purposeful grace. And Jacob, he gets to be part of the plan to bless the world. As we go through the Old Testament, Israel, when they are at their best, are to be like a city on a hill, called to live holy lives which reflect their holy Lord, called to draw people to their maker. We get to the New Testament and we see that pattern continuing. A few weeks ago, we, we thought about the topic of the church. We read Ephesians 2 and 3 and saw it is only in Jesus where we truly begin to see this community of nations brought to unity under God. That he is the one in whom all peoples of the earth will be blessed more than Jacob. We thought about how when we gather what we are doing right now this morning, we are like a megaphone broadcasting the wisdom of God's gracious purposes to the watching world. We are evidence that God is building his kingdom. We get to be part of God's purposes just as Jacob did, although clearly we're at a different point in salvation history. We point to his scandalous grace and we display his purposeful grace. In Christ, we are brought into God's purposes, God's plans for the universe. But if we just left it there, that would, that would be a little bit of a kind of Hollywood ending, wouldn't it? The rest of the chapter, though, verses 16 to 29, show us it's not quite as simple as that for Jacob. And I guess we all know that it's not quite as simple as that for us as well. God is building his kingdom, but he's building it in and through all the chaos that we see in the second half of this chapter. I guess it leaves us with questions. How do we know that this purpose will come good? How do we know that, that it will be built in the end? Well, not only is God's grace scandalous or, or purposeful, but it's also prevailing. It will prevail. Our third point, prevailing grace. 
As we look through the chapter, I wonder if you, you picked up, even though Jacob has got these promises again, we've been reminded of God's purpose, the future can feel quite bleak, can't it? I mean, firstly, we have this tragic and painful episode in verses 16 to 24. Rachel goes into labor at the worst possible time, and it is the worst of possible labors. More, more time is given over to this birth than, than the other boys or Dinah were given in the earlier chapters. And I guess we may be used to reading of people dying in childbirth um, in, in passages like this, but, but we're not used to seeing it today in the same way, are we? We don't hear of it. And I wonder if that gives more weight to it, maybe for, for us to read, than than the original readers may have, may have been used to. This is not, a, not an uncommon thing. But for us, maybe we sense that, that unexpectancy even more. But it is tragic. She gives birth and she dies. She is buried under another pillar on the tomb as a memorial. That's our first kind of tragedy as we go through. Is our God's purposes going to prevail through through Rachel's death? What is God doing here? Secondly, we, we get an episode of incest. Reuben sleeps with Bilhar, his father's, father's concubine. Uh, his his half-brother, Dan and Naphtali, their mum. That's an awkward dinner table, isn't it? This is probably not a question of, of lust, but probably a kind of power play. Now that Rachel has died, Reuben, who is Leah's son, sleeps with Rachel's servant, perhaps to sort of make sure Leah doesn't get overlooked when uh, in kind of the, the family business. Verse 22, we hear Israel heard of it. And that, that's all we're, all we're told. It's striking that there's not much of a reaction again here, is there? But he will remember it later at Genesis uh, when he... Uh, later on in chapter 49. So this incident doesn't get forgotten, but we don't see much going on here. There is, this is a horrendous thing to happen in the family. We've seen, we've seen death, but here we see sin. What is God doing here? Are his purposes going to come good? But then we get this list of sons in 23 to 26. And on the one hand, it's amazing, isn't it? It's a demonstration of the Lord's blessing. He, he said he would, uh, he would bring about a, a people from Jacob, and it looks like he's doing it. But on a closer look, it is quite revealing as well. Look at the first three on the list. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. Well, he's the one who should receive the blessing, but we've just seen what he's done. And then Simeon and Levi, they're next. But in the chapter before, last week, well, well, they've just massacred a load of people. That's three bad apples already, and who knows what's going to happen to the others. What is God doing here? Are his purposes going to prevail? And then, fourthly, Isaac himself dies at the end of the chapter. He was the promised son to Abraham, 180 years old, and he dies. It's interesting that Rebecca doesn't get a mention at all, does she? The most we get from her is verse 8. Her servant, Deborah, died on the journey back. I wonder if the author is deliberately uh, not mentioning her, but mentioning her servants as a way of saying, we're not even going to give Rebecca the, the time of day. Last time 
we heard about her, she, she was scheming with Jacob to get the blessing. And she said, let the curse fall upon me. And that seems to be what's happened. What is God doing here? Again, if we go through the chapter, we've, we've had this renaming happen, but the author doesn't always call Jacob Israel. Sometimes he calls him Jacob. And there's a sense in which we, we, we feel, even as we go on, that, that his loyalties are, 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 are he's, he's not Israel yet. He is still a work in progress. Well, the future can look pretty bleak can't it? Even in this scandalous grace and these amazing purposeful promises, what hope is there that God's purposes will come good here? And it can feel like that for us too, can't it? We experience the, the, the marvel and the sweetness of God's grace. We know the joy of being involved in his purposes, but we look around at the world outside. We look at the world in our own hearts, the volume of sin, death, grief, pain, breakdown, the tears, and, and there's just the confusion as to what is going on. It can look or feel as if the wheels have come off and we are just freewheeling. And if that's you this morning, we should take heart at the chaos in these chapters, that even in the chaos, God is building his kingdom. How do we know that God's grace will prevail? Well, because Prevailing grace rests on promised grace. God promised it in verse 11 and 12, and so God will prevail. It might not look exactly how Jacob had imagined, and there are all sorts of consequences that they will have to deal with. But even though this is bleak, God is still working out this promise. In the pain and the tears, the blood and the groaning, even in the agony of death itself, Rachel, she gives birth to a son near Bethlehem. She calls him son of my sorrow, but Jacob gives him another name, son of my right hand. And it is Jake Benjamin's birth which gives us some hope, because once Benjamin is born, we get this list of 12 sons who will go on to be the 12 tribes of Israel. It is Benjamin's birth that shines forth in this chapter that there is a future, that this people, this kingdom will be built. God has repeated his promise and in spite of grief, there is hope that grace will prevail over death and sin. But what hope do we have that grace will prevail? What hope do we have that sin and death won't have the last word? That God's purposes won't be thwarted even in the darkest days? Well, we hope in a greater Benjamin, don't we? Another promised boy born near Bethlehem who would be the son of his father's right hand. We hope in a greater Rachel whose death would lead to even more life. We hope in someone who's greater than Jacob, who, who won't stop shy of fulfilling his vows before the Lord. Someone who will worship fully heartedly and say, yet not my will, but yours be done. We hope in someone who never sinned like Reuben or used his position as firstborn as a power play, but the supreme one who used his status to serve. We hope in the Lord Jesus, who lived 
who died, who rose, who reigns in the chaos of sin and death, and who will return and bring about the final resolution, who will bring order out of chaos when all things are put under him. How do we know that grace will prevail? Because we know that Jesus will prevail. And in him, we experience God's scandalous grace. We are brought into his purposeful grace. And in him, we can be assured of his prevailing grace as well. We sometimes uh, read these words uh, at the end of our gathering uh, together, um, at the end of Jude. And they're just wonderful words to read as we send one another out, aren't they? But they're also great words to remind ourselves of God's prevailing grace. Jude 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and evermore. Sometimes home feels very far away, but we are told here that in Jesus, God's grace will prevail because in him we have one who is able to keep us from now till the end. As we were singing, Christ, our hope in life and death. Let's take uh, a moment now, shall we? Um, maybe to redevote our hearts to the Lord, to, to commit ourselves to his purposes and not our own, to find comfort in his promise to prevail. And then uh, I'll say a prayer. I'm going to read three verses from an old hymn as a prayer for us as we close. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thy ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light that follows all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain, and feel the promise is not in vain, that morn shall tearless be. Father, we thank you that in Jesus we see and we know and taste for ourselves the scandal and sweetness of your grace. The amazing privilege of being involved in your purposes and the comfort that because Jesus has prevailed over sin and death and is able to bring us home and sustain us on the journey, we too can trust in your prevailing grace too. Please minister these truths to our hearts, we pray by your spirit. In Jesus' name.
Amen.